Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and today we're looking at the powers of political executives. What can ministers and presidents do without the consent of the legislature, and what place should powers such as that have in a democracy? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. We typically divide the modern state into three branches, the legislature, the executive and the judiciary. On a traditional view, the legislature makes the laws, the executive implements them and the judiciary decides on disputes. In reality, in most states, the executive in fact plays a much bigger role than that. It not only executes the will of the legislature, but also shapes the political agenda, develops legislative proposals and conducts a great deal of foreign policy. And on some matters, the executive can act without the consent of the legislature, even in some cases against its explicit opposition. Here in the UK, such powers are called prerogative powers, and they have been pretty controversial in recent years, relating, for example, to the government's ability to suspend sittings of parliament. The use of such powers raises eyebrows from time to time in the United States too, most recently when, on his first day in office, President Biden reversed a whole series of Trump-era policies just by signing a set of executive orders. So what such prerogative powers exist? How do they work? And in the context of modern democracy, should they be subject to greater constraints? Well, joining me here to explore such questions is Robert Hazel, Professor of Government and the Constitution here in the UCL Department of Political Science and former director of the UCL Constitution Unit. Robert has decades of experience researching all things constitutional and he is in the early stages of a new study focusing specifically on prerogative powers. Robert, welcome back to UCL Uncovering Politics. We're going to focus here mainly on the UK, but shall we start by sketching the bigger picture? What do we mean by prerogative powers or the royal prerogative here in the UK, and how does that compare with what we find elsewhere? Well, the prerogative equates to what in other countries we might call reserve powers, powers reserved to the executive, or powers for use in an emergency. But we should distinguish between laws and action. All countries allow the executive to make laws by decree, which is what Joe Biden's executive orders are. And in the UK, the government also makes such laws, secondary legislation called statutory instruments, or if they're made under the prerogative, orders in council. But another element of prerogative, which is also found in other countries, is what you might call an executive veto or executive override. So, for example, all political systems have a safety valve mechanism to resolve political gridlock, the need to dissolve the legislature when the government cannot get its business through and no alternative government can be formed. And we know what gridlock looks like from the Brexit Parliament of 2017 to 19. It's difficult to generalise about other countries, but in a survey of just over 35 democracies done by Professor Petra Schleiter of Oxford, She found that the executive was involved in about two-thirds of cases in the decision to dissolve Parliament. But the prerogative also empowers the executive to take action, to act without reference to Parliament or without statutory authority. Sometimes this is in an emergency, declaring war, military action. 
But in the UK, some of the day-to-day -day work of government, the conduct of diplomacy and foreign policy, the work of the armed forces, is also done under the prerogative. So thinking of those day-to-day -day things as examples just from my own life, when I was working in the Home Office in the 1970s and 80s, the whole of the civil service was regulated under the prerogative. When I was given a CBE 15 years ago, that was done under the prerogative because the whole of the honours system operates under the prerogative with the Queen as the fount of all honour. And when last year I optimistically applied for a new passport, that was issued under the prerogative as part of the general conduct of foreign affairs. So the prerogative is used for day-to-day -day things as well as for emergency things and things like the declaration of war. And is the prerogative in the UK unusual in comparison with the sorts of reserved powers that exist in other countries? It's uh, not unusual in terms of the war-making power and the power to act in the case of emergencies. It is unusual uh, in controlling things like the issue of passports, but taking our close constitutional cousins, uh, the countries of Australia, Canada and New Zealand, they all included the prerogative as part of their constitutions, um, and they have a set of prerogative powers which are very similar to our own. So we talk about royal prerogative powers, which sounds like these are powers in the hands of the monarch. Is that how it really works? Well, we should distinguish two different categories of prerogative power. And there are indeed a few prerogative powers which are called the personal prerogative powers of the monarch or her constitutional prerogatives. And those include the power to appoint uh, and to dismiss ministers, in particular, the power to appoint or dismiss the prime minister. Um, and the monarch also, until 10 years ago, had the power of dissolution to dissolve parliament at the request of the prime minister. But that's always been considered to be a discretionary power. And the present Johnson government, in wanting to repeal the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, wants to uh, revive the prerogative power of dissolution and there's a lot of discussion currently going on um, about whether that would be still a discretionary power and if so in what circumstances the monarch might refuse a request to dissolve parliament. Should we just uh, explain what do we mean exactly by a discretionary power? Well a discretionary power is one normally when the queen exercises her personal prerogatives she acts on the advice of ministers. But it's always been recognized, uh, in particular in relation to the power of dissolution, that if a prime minister, for example, having lost one general election but still being in office, were to request an immediate dissolution, in effect, to try to have a second chance in fighting a second election, the monarch might not want to accede to that request. And so there is doctrine uh, about the circumstances in which a a monarch can properly refuse a request for dissolution. Mm. But presumably in many cases, the monarch has no role at all in practice in how prerogative powers are exercised. That's right. There's a whole set of prerogative powers, which are in effect powers exercised uh, by ministers without any reference to the monarch. And those are the powers uh, in relation to making and ratifying treaties, 
the conduct of diplomacy and, and foreign relations, deployment of the armed forces, the appointment and removal of ministers, the grant of peerages and honours, organisation of the civil service, the issue of passports that I mentioned, the grant of pardons. Uh, all those things are effectively powers exercised by ministers with little or no reference to the monarch. So in recent years, thinking particularly about the UK here, in recent years there have been some big controversies over the use of uh, prerogative powers, uh, which have ended up being decided in the courts. So there was a big controversy shortly after the Brexit referendum in 2016 about whether the executive had the power to initiate the process of leaving the European Union by, uh, as we always say, triggering the Article 50 process or whether Parliament had to give its consent to that first. And it was the Supreme Court that ended up ruling and saying that no Parliament had to make that decision. It couldn't just be the executive that did it on its own. And then, uh, perhaps even more spectacularly, in 2019, uh, the government of Boris Johnson sought to uh, exercise the um, prerogative power to prorogue Parliament, to suspend the sittings of Parliament for a period of five weeks or so, if I remember correctly. And the Supreme Court ended up ruling that that was an improper exercise of the use of that prerogative power to decide when Parliament uh, is sitting. Um, so there have been these big contra controversies that have taken place in recent years over the exercise of the prerogative and the limits on the prerogative. Um, is such controversy over this a new thing? No, it is a new thing. Um, but that's mainly because no government has abused the prerogative powers in that way before. So uh, in particular, the uh, decision by the government to prorogue Parliament for a period as long as five weeks at a really critical stage in the Brexit negotiations was regarded uh, as an abuse of the power of prorogation, which in the past has simply been used at the end of a parliamentary session to prorogue Parliament, typically for a matter of a few days or a week or so before the beginning of the next session. Um, and it was because Parliament uh, had been prorogued for such a long period at such a very critical stage um, that the courts held that that prorogation was unlawful because it was in effect shutting down Parliament when uh, the key constitutional role of Parliament is to scrutinise the policies and the actions of the executive. Um, and the court held that constitutionally it was wrong for Parliament to be shut down in that way. Um, so that was a very unusual thing, but it followed um, a very unusual and very controversial decision uh, by the government. Similarly, um, the same essential reasoning uh, underlay the decision over Article 50, um, and the court held that because it was such a very big step politically to trigger Article 50 and initiate the process of withdrawal from the European Union, uh, that, there was, that was not a decision which the executive could or should take on its own. It was a decision for which it had to gain parliamentary approval. And that was the basis of the reasoning in the Article 50 case. So we have something new in the experience of the last few years, but you're suggesting that what is new is how the government, how particular governments have sought to use uh, prerogative powers and they have been perhaps rather bolder in seeking to 
exercise these powers than previous governments had been. Previous governments had been more cautious in respecting limits on what they can do under these powers. Is that is that reasonable? Yes, although it's a relatively recent development, just of the last 50 years or so, that the courts have got involved in reviewing the exercise of prerogative powers at all. So that uh, first changed uh, with a case known to lawyers as the Burma Oil case in 1965. And that's a good illustration of the use of prerogative power. It uh, went back to the Second World War and the Japanese invasion of Burma. And the UK government at the time decided to destroy uh, all the installations in the Burma oil fields to prevent them from falling into the hands of the Japanese. And most of those installations belong to the Burma Oil Company, uh, which subsequently sought compensation for that destruction. And the court held that it was a perfectly proper use of the prerogative powers in wartime to take and destroy property. And then there was another landmark case uh, 20 years later in the mid-1980s known as the GCHQ case, when the government banned the operation of civil service unions at GCHQ. And in that case, the courts held that that prerogative power also was reviewable, although in the event the civil service unions lost the case, but on a different ground, on national security grounds. Uh, and then we've already discussed uh, the Article 50 case and the prorogation case, two cases brought by Gina Miller, where the courts went even further, in effect controlling prerogative powers on the grounds of constitutional principle. So the courts have been, in a sense, chipping away at the prerogative power, or at least um, clarifying the constraints on the prerogative power over recent years. Um, would it be fair to say that Parliament has also been kind of picking off prerogative powers over time? Yes, indeed. And uh, over the last 20 years or so, we can see Parliament trying to assert tighter control. And the best example of that um, is in relation to war powers, because uh, at the time of the British invasion of Iraq in 2003, along with the United States and some other allied powers. That was a hugely controversial decision at the time and indeed subsequently. And there was a parliamentary debate which approved that military action. Uh, and according to some, that established a convention that in relation to any future military action, there would always be a parliamentary debate on a substantive motion and Parliament would be invited to approve in advance the military action uh, before that action was engaged. But subsequent to that, uh, there have been a whole series of parliamentary inquiries. I counted them up for the purpose of our new research project by six different uh, parliamentary committees, or rather six inquiries by different parliamentary committees. Um, the Lord's Constitutional Committee, the House of Commons Defence Committee, the House of Commons Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, etc., have all chipped away at this. And they have all um, chipped away at different possible solutions in terms of how there might be greater parliamentary control over military action. Should we simply continue with this as a matter of convention that the government would always arrange for a parliamentary debate? Or should the House of Commons assert itself 
by passing a general resolution requiring the government always to hold a parliamentary debate before engaging in military action, or the strongest form of discipline would be actually to codify the rules in statute and to set it out in statute law that before engaging in any military action, the government should always seek prior parliamentary approval. And these issues have all been tested subsequently. Um, first of all, over the UK bombing of Libya in 2011, when there was a parliamentary debate and parliament approved that action. Uh, and then two years later, when the government wanted to engage in bombing action over Syria and there was a parliamentary debate, in that, on that occasion, the government lost that vote by about a dozen votes and as a result did not engage in bombing in Syria. And perhaps mindful of that precedent, five years later, when Theresa May as Prime Minister wanted to engage in bombing of Syria for slightly similar reasons, because the Assad government had said to be been using chemical weapons, um, she authorised the bombing of Syria without seeking the prior approval of Parliament. And that has led those who had been talking up the existence of a convention rather to eat their words and accept that there isn't a clearly established convention. And I think uh, it will be very difficult to establish a codified set of rules uh, requiring there always to be prior parliamentary approval for a range of reasons. One is sometimes there will be real emergencies and there simply isn't time to organise a parliamentary debate. One is the changing nature of modern warfare with things like drones and cyber attack. Do those require prior parliamentary approval before we engage in such action? And the third difficulty is simply sharing intelligence. So, for example, the intelligence over chemical weapons, a lot of it was highly classified. And it's quite difficult sometimes for the government to share that intelligence with Parliament, particularly with the whole of the House of Commons, if there is to be a debate, um, without some of that intelligence possibly um, leaking. And so there are very genuine difficulties in having tighter parliamentary control over military action. So just continuing to focus a little bit further on the issue of military action, what is the appropriate solution there? I guess there's a, there's a need to balance, on the one hand, the desire for proper parliamentary scrutiny, uh, and on the other hand, those uh, considerations that you just raised around emergency situations, uh, th this kind of information that can be available to parliamentarians and so on. What is the appropriate balance there? I think the appropriate balance, and we very nearly got there when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister 10 years ago, would be a House of Commons resolution setting out uh, the overall framework and a set of principles. But the resolution inevitably would contain some get-out clauses, in particular um, about emergencies requiring immediate military action. So inevitably, there are likely to be some cases where the House of Commons will be invited to approve military action after the fact rather than beforehand. 
And what's the practical difference between a House of Commons resolution and statute? And why, why would you set out such provisions in, in a resolution rather than actually putting them, setting them down in law? Well, the big difference there is the role of the courts, because if it was set out in statute, then people who wanted to challenge uh, what had happened could go to the courts and say they have breached the law, whereas a House of Commons resolution uh, is something within the cognizance only of the House of Commons, and the courts would never uh, would never entertain a a legal challenge to breach of a House of Commons resolution, because uh, under the Bill of Rights that would be seen to be a matter of House of Commons privilege and not something that the courts would go into. And if we extend that discussion beyond uh, military action, um, are there kind of general principles that we can apply when we think about uh, whether prerogative powers generally are justifiable in a democratic system? And in, in some sense, prerogative powers would seem to sit rather uneasily with the principles of democracy that we uh, we want in a democracy generally, you would think, to have detailed scrutiny. You would want a variety of different voices to be heard. That's why we elect a, a parliament or a legislature rather than just electing an executive in the first place. So uh, what, what are the general principles that we should seek to apply in thinking about when it is appropriate to have prerogative powers and when not? Well, indeed, and I, I mentioned uh, Gordon Brown uh, as prime minister. And when he came into office in 2007, he had ambitious plans to codify all the prerogative powers because he thought it was wrong in a democratic system that these powers uh, lay simply in the hands of the executive. And he initiated a systematic review to list all the prerogative powers under a huge government-wide survey. And they then went through all the powers one by one. But they concluded that they couldn't be codified. It was just too complex. It, for example, in the conduct of diplomacy or the regulation of the armed forces, they found that the statutory and prerogative powers were so intertwined that it was impossible effectively to disentangle them. And in other uh, areas such as emergency powers, which are now largely covered by an act of parliament, the Civil Contingencies Act 2004, it was nevertheless felt desirable to keep the prerogative for extreme emergencies where immediate action was required before emergency regulations could be made. But it's fair to say Gordon Brown did succeed in codifying some of the prerogative powers for example, the prerogative power to manage the civil service, because the Civil Service Commission is now on a statutory footing under Part 1 of the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act of 2010, and the prerogative power to sign and ratify treaties is now subject to parliamentary scrutiny under Part 2 of that Act. And uh, in 2011, the prerogative power of dissolution uh, was abolished by the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. So dissolution is now a matter for the House of Commons, not the executive. That's something the Johnson government wants to reverse, uh, which is a matter currently being considered by a joint parliamentary committee that's reviewing the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. Yes, so that's one instance of several in which the current government is pushing in the opposite direction from, I think, what probably has been the general trend in recent years. Uh, so the, the general trend has been towards greater constraint on the prerogative powers. But the current government, as you say, so it's proposing to repeal the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act and restore the prerogative power 
uh, for, in effect, the Prime Minister to decide when Parliament will be resolved. And it's also conducting a number of reviews at the moment into the role of the courts and seems to be wanting to constrain the ability of the courts to intervene in defining where the limits of the prerogative powers lie. Um, what should we make of such steps? Are they are, are they kind of re- rebalancing in a system that has has pushed too far towards uh, constraining the executive, or should we be worried about what the, the current executive is seeking to do? Well, to my mind, the courts were fulfilling their proper role in defining the extent of government power and stepping in when the government exceeded its powers. Uh, But the Brexiteers uh, strongly resented that. Um, And it's clear that the Johnson government wants to reverse the balance of power, as you've said, in favour of the executive. And it's set in train a number of reviews, a review of administrative law chaired uh, by Lord Foulkes, um, and now a review also of the Human Rights Act. Um, And we've mentioned the Joint Parliamentary Committee reviewing the Fixed Term Parliament Act, whose report is expected at the end of March. Um, And none of these reviews has yet reported. Well, the Fox Review has reported, but its report is not yet published. So we wait to see um, what these various reviews recommend. I doubt myself uh, that the Johnson government will get very far in reversing the the balance of power uh, in favour of the executive. but it does have a big majority in the House of Commons. Um, And so we must wait in particular to see what the Joint Committee says that's been reviewing the Fixed Term Parliament Act um, and whether the government uh, can still steam ahead with its manifesto commitment to repeal that act and to restore the prerogative power of dissolution. Uh, Should it be able to do so? Uh, Well, I think uh, that dissolution should be left in the hands of Parliament uh, where it belongs. Um, And I I think that the power of prorogation should similarly be controlled uh, by Parliament and not by the executive. Um, And that will be a very big constitutional battle uh, over the proper balance of power between those two branches of government. The current government is seeking to revivify some prerogative powers, either by contrast some prerogative powers that actually should be more constrained than they are at present and perhaps should be codified and placed under statutory control? I think there are several powers uh, which should be codified. Um, I think the strongest example is the issue of passports, where it's really bizarre that these are regulated simply by uh, a statement given by the Home Secretary to the House of Commons, setting out some broad general principles. to regulate the issue and, in particular, the withdrawal or denial of passports to individual citizens. Um, But another example where I would like to see tighter control of the prerogative is the grant of peerages, because that uh, has got seriously out of control with, uh, in particular, the latest list of peerages, um, I think some 36 peerages granted by the Prime Minister last summer. But that takes us into a much wider issue uh, over the ballooning size of the House of Lords. Um, And in order to bring uh, the House of Lords uh, down to uh, more suitable numbers, the 
prerogative power, which in effect is the power of the Prime Minister to create peerages, needs to be more tightly regulated. So those would be my main two candidates or specific prerogative powers that need tighter control, the issue of passports and the grant of peerages. Well, thank you so much, Robert. This has been a really fascinating discussion and a very nice primer in a rather complex topic, but you've uh, clarified a great deal. It uh, sounded at times there as though you might be having a cup of tea uh, prepared for you in the background. So I hope you uh, have a a nice refreshment uh, awaiting you at the end of this recording. Next time, we're looking at preparations for the COP26 climate summit that takes place in Glasgow in November. Does it look capable of setting the world on a path towards net zero carbon emissions or not? Remember to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Spotify or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.